Listener Production. Punchy, whacked, power, influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> Well, in this episode, we're very lucky to be talking to Dr. Kirsten Ferguson. She's a board director. She's deputy chair of the ABC. She's a leadership expert. She's a lawyer. What hasn't she done? This woman is an overachiever. She's extraordinary. She started out in the military. She says she's a late onset feminist. So I think we're going to hear a little bit more about that. And very recently, she had the honour, I'm green with envy, of interviewing Gloria Steinem. I personally can't wait to interview her. Kirsten, I understand that you interviewed the feminist icon, Gloria Steinem. Tell us about that. Oh, what a highlight. In in an otherwise challenging year, I've got to say spending an hour talking to Gloria Steinem was a real highlight. She's amazing. Before the interview, I've got to tell you, I was pretty nervous. I thought, She has been interviewed by everyone for decades. How can I possibly ask any question that's going to be interesting or new or in any way, um, you know, going to challenge her? And what I was so fortunate about is she's such a gracious interviewee and we just had the, I, I forgot very quickly that we were doing an interview for the Canberra Writers Festival. It did very much become a conversation. I, I'm just in awe of her. I mean, at her age, her contributions, she's so humble. I mean, you could sit and talk to her for hours. I nearly got waylaid though, Catherine, you'll appreciate this. She was um, speaking, obviously, over Zoom from someone's grand home in the Californian hills somewhere and she was in what she called their sort of bungalow which looked like you know a grand mansion anyway and she offered to walk around and do a tour and I'm thinking I could spend the whole hour just looking at wherever (laughs) she's staying and let's just not talk about books at all but I figured perhaps the Writers Festival may not have appreciated that but no it was an absolute pleasure and lots of surprising um, things that I learned out uh, of speaking with her and, um, yeah, it was just a thrill, a real thrill. Because she's in her 80s now, isn't she, Gloria? She is. Oh. I think she's 86, 87. <gasps> yeah. Unbelievable. But, wow. I mean, she looks fantastic. She she just is an incredible woman. See what feminism does for you. Yes. It's <laughs> <such an laughs> aging. <laughs> just look at us. I <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. No, indeed. Absolutely. But Kirsten, to return to you, and you've had this absolutely fantastic highlight with Gloria Steinem, for which I personally am absolutely green with envy, but I shall swallow that envy. But you, you describe yourself, in fact, as a bit of a late onset feminist and that, you know, you come to it over time. What were your original attitudes? What changed them and how do you feel now? Oh, look, for the, uh, if you'd asked me even five years ago, uh, I, w- I was running from women's events. I didn't want to be seen dead at anything that looked like a feminist event where I might be accused of being, you know, that difficult woman, God forbid, asking for equal pay. I thought I'd come through the military when I was sort of 17 to 21, so I was taught very early on the only way to succeed was to fit in. Uh, and I hoped for most of my career no one noticed I was female at all. 
And, you know, it's now I look back and think what a waste that was because the power of the women I was working with would have seen us all through. But in most of the environments I was in, there were very few women. And so I suspect my response was a very natural one to being in the minority. And it wasn't until I was much more senior and I had um, the ability to see, if we think about gender pay gaps, being sitting on boards and actually seeing the pay gap. It's not just whispered about or thought of anecdotally, oh, have you heard what this person's on? Or I would see the data and that really, you know, got my goat, if that's the saying, because uh, there's nothing like seeing it in black and white and then asking questions about, well, why, how on earth can that be justified and why is that the case and not being satisfied with the answers. I think um, once you start to advocate for others, it becomes very easy to get pissed off. And in fact, that's the title of Gloria's book, The Truth Will Set You Free, but first it'll piss you off. And, <laughs> and I think I was getting pissed off and um, that was becoming a more frequent event. And then I met, you know, people like Catherine, who obviously we've done a bit of work together and you came out of the womb, Catherine, I think, as a feminist. And I was quite <laughs> the opposite to that. But in good news, we're at least at the same point, <laughs> at some point in our careers, which is good. You're a quick learner. Um, but, but also, Kirsten, I remember you saying um, on a couple of occasions when we've been speaking, that one of the things that you'd look at women who were perhaps being a bit vocal and saying, look, I feel like I have suffered from bias and sexism. And in your head, you'd be thinking, oh, that's just you. You know, like you, 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 it was you, you didn't try hard enough. You didn't make that decision, blah, blah, blah. That I think is a very common perception. I, I, I think, you know, we're, that's reinforced by a lot of the things that we see around us, isn't it? It's an individual problem. And you, you and I know we wrote about it in Womankind um, that Holly Kramer talked about those four stages of gender awareness, the first being denial. And I've got daughters 20 and 18. And when I talk to them about a gender pay gap, they can't even comprehend that one exists. It's just too impossible to even start to understand how that can be possible. I think you then go into this stage of denial, which is what you were talking about, where there's a real lack of understanding of systemic issues and so it's easy to think it must be an individual person it must be something they've done or you know they're not working hard enough or you know goodness they've got a maternity leave so of course you know they lose their role (laughs) you just simply don't understand I think especially early in your career but then that awakening comes and Holly then talks about advocating for others and um, I think those four stages I probably went through quite rapidly but it took me a long time and that survival mechanism of just wanting to be thought of as a leader I didn't you know you hear it now especially from many women who say I just want to be known for what I do and for being a leader I don't want to be a female whatever and none of us do obviously but I think it becomes ingrained in trying to hide from your gender and that was not the the best way for me to sort of learn about some of these issues. What's interesting is I I agree with you. I think for a lot of women who weren't lucky, as lucky as Catherine and I were, because we were both born and brought up by feminists, and that gives you a bit of a head start. But for a lot of women who come to it over time, they do go through those stages, their own lives teach them the reality of what's going on. What worries me is the very things you're saying are the things I still hear so many men and boys saying. Mm. How do we get more men to understand that we're not making this shit up. Oh, 
Jane. <laughs> you want to know about prize if you get this one? Do you know, I just I wanted to share. No with pressure, you. Kirsten. No, no, no well, I don't have the answer. But what I can share with you, which I'm experiencing for the first time, is I wrote an op-ed that was published in the Sydney Morning Herald today, and it was talking yes, about the um, AOC speech last week and about how we need to bust this myth that men who are fathers are somehow more entitled to be committed to gender equality or they don't abuse women. And um, God forbid I went into the comments section. Now, you two are going to tell me never go into the comments section. Absolutely. Everything you just said um, relates to when you read these comments. There's just an anger almost that we would point something out that might be my experience. It was my view. It's valid and you might not agree with it, but it's my view. But because it's not their lived experience, I look at those four stages we're talking about and there's still a lot of denial and there's a lack of willingness to move through to try and understand. So, Jane, I don't know what the answer is, but you're quite right. It's totally alive and well. Kirsten, talking about anger and that kind of vitriol, take us back to why you launched the hashtag Celebrating Women campaign, which of course I became very conversant with uh, and participated in as Jane did, because that was a fascinating sort of watershed moment for you. And just before we even talk about it, you started it at the beginning of 2017. Important to point that out. So a good 10 months before something like Me Too. So that sort of whole online collective work happened? Well, if you think back to 2017, women were, well, Trump had just won. So Trump had just sort of taken office. Women were taking to the streets in numbers we'd never seen in the women's marches and knitting their pink pussy hats. And do you remember there was just this a pervasive anger, I think, for mm. most women that a really competent woman had not been elected and yet a man who bragged about assaulting women had somehow made their way into the office. Regardless of what your politics were, I think it just seemed so unfair. And anyway, that was bubbling away. And as I said, I wasn't someone who was putting my head above the parapet at all on these issues. But um, I was becoming increasingly angry at the online denigration that women were facing. And it happened to just be a thread of tweets aimed at the broadcaster, Patricia Carvelis. And I can't even remember what the tweets were now, but they were your, unfortunately, run-of-the-mill abusive tweets. And I just, that really pissed me off. And the thought that we see it every day and it hasn't changed, sadly, it's probably got worse, but that you feel like such a bystander because you know that if you heard someone saying that next to the person, you would call the police, you would do something, you'd speak up for them. But online, it's so much more difficult. Anyway, that is what prompted my walk along the beach, ended up in a bar drinking a shandy on my own. It's all a bit of a lame story that I've had to tell far too many times and I wish it was a bit more glamorous. But I wanted to try and make my news feed a bit more positive and ended up sharing a story about my mum and I didn't tell anyone it was um, my mum and asked her four questions and shared some photos. And that led to the most remarkable year of celebrating women and I've always believed every woman is a role model and so I wanted to um, highlight women from all walks of life and from anywhere in the world and in the end celebrated 757 women from 37 countries around the world and it thrust me into this space of talking about women and advocating for women and gosh writing a book called Womankind which had you told my 17 year old self who was hiding from the fact she was female at all you know I would never have believed you but it's easily the most rewarding thing I've ever done and no trolling which was quite extraordinary 
It is, it is extraordinary. And to think, you know, now we see trolling. Well, even then, there was trolling on everything. But Twitter, as you know, Catherine, has sort of looked at why this was the case and they believe it was just because it was such a positive campaign. And my own theory is I think, you know, to troll some of these women who were your sisters, your neighbours, your shopkeepers, they were very ordinary women but in the most flattering sense of the word. Gosh, I like to hope that even the worst trolls find that challenging. Kirsten, going back a bit, you mentioned being in the military where it was um, practically, you know, part of the signing on is to fit in, as you point out. What did your parents think when you said, I'm going off to join the Air Force? (laughs) Well, I'd come from a military family. So I think there was um, a better understanding than most parents about what's involved. But then you would think, given that, they might have had some hesitations. Um, I don't remember anyone ever warning me, talking to me about the fact I was going to be in single-digit numbers of women in a group of a 1,000 young men from sort of 17 to 21. Uh, No one spoke to us as women about how to deal with that. And I think that's part of the survival mechanism is you learn to fit in really well and you learn to get on with the guys. Uh, I do remember, though, um, it was a very hierarchical when I was there. So I was there in the early 90s, which has been the subject of much review and sort of Four Corners documentaries and all of that. And it was really very difficult for women and also for some men. But uh, they hadn't – they didn't really have women in the senior positions when you got to third year. And I was – um, I'd obviously done quite well and I ended up ducksing my Air Force year. So I, I was, you know, quite um, successful as a female, but even just as a cadet. But part of the selection process um, for a position in your third year is there's physical activities and uh, interviews and all sorts of things you've got to do. And I remember getting pulled aside after I did my final panel interview for the very most senior position called Academy Cadet Captain, and they'd never had a female cadet captain before. And I'd obviously done quite well. I was down to the final two. And the commandant pulled me aside and said, look, you are fantastic, but we just don't think the academy's ready for a female in that role yet. And we're going to offer you the 2IC position. And my only response that I remember is feeling grateful. And that is just indicative of that denial and understanding of systemic, I mean, this is overt, it's not even unconscious bias. Um, And, you know, I look back now and I'd love someone to have a conversation with me like that. I'd have a few choice words for them. But back then, I was just grateful to have Mm. even been considered. Mm -hmm. I think that that still exists, though. I still, Mm. I, I think a lot of women are still, I often say it to people, I remain pathetically grateful to be asked. Yeah. You know, we we just don't have the same sense that we're entitled to be successful and to get ahead that I sense in a lot of men from particular backgrounds, you know, white, straight, often private school educated men, often just expect that, you know, their lives will follow a particular trajectory. I think one of the great strengths of outsiders, if you like, women, people of colour, you know, non-binary, et cetera, et cetera, is that we don't have that expectation, that on some level we do remain grateful. Is that a bad thing, though? Maybe it's a good thing. I think overall 
longer term, I think it's not a bad thing. I think it means that you're actually being a bit outward looking. You're not focusing constantly on your own, getting your status enhanced. But I think it comes at a cost Mm. because I think the reason we're like that is because we've been marginalised from power. But I do, I I just was thinking back though to, to the whole military and asking you about your parents. What I was also wondering, and having mentioned Gloria Steinem right at the beginning, who's really uh, been an influence on you, do you reckon, over the years? Are there two or three people? I mean, men, women, you know, just wonder who's kind of really had an impact on your thinking and perhaps decision-making. Uh, I'm, I've always thought of my, I've got lots of mentors. You're one, Catherine. We've, you know, I seek you, your advice on many things, but I've always thought of my mentors as a bit of a buffet. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it depends on the decision I'm having Catherine to make. Catherine must be the dessert. <laughs> yes, oh, definitely, definitely. I hope so. um, no, I think I've always had people, but there's numerous, and I, I'm always, I guess, self-aware enough to know who I need to speak to about certain decisions. I mean, a consistent influence is my husband. So we've been together 25 years and he's not involved in any of the same sort of work area that I'm involved in. And um, his advice is always, you know, when you just need someone who knows you so well and is unbiased and has no agenda and, you know, I think whoever it might be, having a partner like that's really important. But uh, it sounds really trite, but I do trust myself too. So I have... um, I always seek advice, but ultimately, you know, we're the owners of our decisions and um, I, I have confidence in myself. The imposter syndrome is alive and well, though, and I definitely experience that like every single person I know, men and women, but I've become much better at ignoring it and hearing the voice and sort of moving on. about your time around the board table because actually that was part of your penny dropping, wasn't it? Seeing the statistics on the pay gap actually made you think, oh, hang on, you know, this is black and white. What do you reckon has changed in boardrooms uh, for the better and what, what do we still need to change? Well, I think it's now expected, not even just tolerated, to talk about diversity and inclusion and to be asking questions about the gender pay gap. A funny story, probably about eight years ago, um, I was around a board table and asked about a blatantly obvious gender pay gap that was going to happen from appointment. So as we know, women aren't as perhaps open about negotiating for money as they want. So we had a really clear example. I asked some questions to try and fix that before it happened and I was pulled aside after the meeting by one of the my colleagues and told that people would think I was a um, hairy arm-fitted feminist if I was to continue with that line of questioning. And I was so angry. You know, when you're so angry, I just didn't even know what to say. But that person's no longer there and I've already fixed that gap. <laughs> and so I'm quite <laughs> proud to be hairy armpitted or not, uh, certainly a feminist. Yeah, yeah, so things have changed. I mean, that would just never happen now. And so important, isn't it? And we sometimes hear that there's sort of a trade-off. Why are we pushing for more women on boards when, you know, women at entry level, women in lower paid, lower skilled jobs are suffering so much? Obviously, I always say we need both. Mm. If we don't have women in decision-making, those things will never change. Well, and I guess that's that's the thing to remember. Example number one is what's going on with the decisions being currently made 
been our government in terms of women and the huge losses that they are experiencing in terms of loss of jobs, loss of income, the impact it's had, the decision to make low-paid childcare workers, mostly women, the first people to lose their government subsidy and that childcare, which was one of the most expensive in the world before we went into COVID, going back to being really expensive and then everyone acting surprised when there was an article yesterday that people are taking their kids out of childcare and who's going to lose their opportunity to work? Well, it's not going to be dads in the main. What's your feeling about that? This is back to Gloria's book, The Truth Will Set You Free But First It Will Piss You Off. I I was astounded to see some stats come out this week from McKinsey that um, the impact of COVID on gender equality, which we know is just such is going to be an issue for decades, but 54% of job losses are belonging to women. So women are 1.8 times more vulnerable to job losses than men right now. And what really got my goat again, gosh, I've used that twice, you two are having a good influence on me and getting freaky, (laughs) but more than 50% of the people who responded to this survey said that when jobs are scarce, they should go to men. And that just tells you we've come nowhere. I mean, what is this that women are nice to have but really when it comes to it or if it comes to a crisis or if it comes to a choice, can you go back to the kitchens because we need to employ our men? Precisely the point, because we know from other studies that have come out in the last few months that, in fact, women are taking up a disproportionate amount of the educating their kids, whatever that involves at home, uh, working from home, doing but doing the disproportionate amount of housework, unpaid labour, basically, in the home. So we yes. reverted to that very quickly. And we forget over and over, and I mean, I've written a book about this, so it's really high on my agenda, that this systemic barriers in place to women earning an income throughout their lives means that as women age, they are much more vulnerable to poverty when they are old. Mm. So weirdly, their reward for putting themselves second, for taking care of other people's needs ahead of their own, as society expects them to do, is to end up at greater risk of living out of their car when they're old. I I don't know what to do to get this through to people, that this is not just about, oh, it's a nice indulgence for mum to have a little job that Mm. keeps her occupied. Isn't that sweet? (laughs) Given she won all the prizes (laughs) at university, it's keeping her up to speed, lovely, lucky mum. It's not like that. It's life and death. It's it's having a decent standard of living and being independent and making your own decisions and not having to stay in lousy marriages, for God's sake. Uh, uh, have there been any stats about the gender split of people accessing their superannuation yes, yes, early? Because yes. I think, oh, they have, and more women No, than not men. more. Um, okay. And that probably relates to the number of men who have more in superannuation. So while mm. um, it was pretty, I, I saw some figures recently, women are certainly accessing it though. They're accessing smaller amounts, but again, I think that's proportional to how yeah. much their savings are, um, but very concerning. And as you know, the next sort of la- level of that has just started. So that's... Well, they won't be able to make it up. That no. is the problem. And the other thing I did see also a uh, study about that was that men and women are spending that super yeah. that they access early on very different, different things. Mm. Women, it's more about staying alive and surviving. Men, it seems to be disproportionately about still being able to have a good time. Ah, yes. Well, twas ever thus. Mm. Now, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, of course, dwell on 
only the negatives, no. even though there are quite a few. Kirsten, <laughs> I know you're asked all the time because I think all all three of us are for advice. Uh, you know, what what's the thing that, that really stuck with you, what helped and so on? I know there's never one piece of advice. But when you are asked that by younger women, women, I guess, you know, kind of your girl's age and a little bit older, what are the kinds of things that yep. you think are useful to pass on to them? Uh, I do always say to young women to say yes to opportunities. So uh, it is something I've always done. I've done an enormous amount in my career and, you know, sometimes I look at everything I've done and think how did I jam it all in and it's because I've said yes to opportunities and you just never know what sort of path it will take you down or what other door it will open. When we talked about the imposter syndrome before, almost every time I've been offered an opportunity, I think, oh, there's no way I could do that. You know, there must be someone else, blah, 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 blah. I've just become better at hearing that and spending all of, you know, nanosecond thinking about it. So I think for younger women listening, say yes, even if you don't think you've got the skills, you'll pick it up along the way and you'll become a better leader or person or whatever it is you want to do for having been prepared to learn as well. So say yes. Say yes. And, and uh, you've got a wonderful portfolio career now. I mean, you, you you know, you've built that absolutely. And it's been years of saying yes and having that experience across a whole range of areas. Is there a particular sweet spot in that uh, portfolio for you? <laughs> Well, I laugh because uh, all the stuff that I really love doing is the stuff I'm not paid for. <laughs> oh, yes, snap, and, yeah. And like we've, that's the story of everyone's life, isn't it? So, look, I do enjoy sitting on lots of boards and they're all really different and that's definitely my day job. But I love um, speaking and writing and I'm coaching people now, men. I, surprisingly, I thought there'd be yeah. more women that um, I'd end up coaching, but a lot of men who men who want to know how to lead differently, which I think is fantastic. And so when you find men who are willing to listen and learn, you know, it's just a gift. So that's been very enjoyable. Um, but I think the, the sweet spot is that it is um, a patchwork of activities and I honestly never realised how much I would love that and it's something I would never give up now. And You two are probably both the same. The fact that no week looks exactly like the last and that you never know what next week will hold is um, oh, just it is. fantastic. It's having a bit of control, isn't it, over what you do yeah. as well. I mean, there's some obligatory stuff, obviously, we have to earn a crust, but I think it's having that <laughs> discretion to actually do things. I do think, though, I, I obviously, I'm obviously the gloomy one today because I do want to bring back 2017 is when you launched Celebrating Women. You launched it because you saw the kind of vitriol that was being thrown at women. I do sense, and I, I think you do too, Catherine, that there has been a huge backlash post Me Too, which I think was an incredibly important truth-telling moment for an awful lot of women. Do you see that backlash continuing? We've already talked about the fact that COVID in a way has enabled those who would like to see the world go back to the way it was to have some chance to maybe push that along a bit. How do you think we deal with that backlash? I'm asking you the Nobel Prize winning question again. How do we deal with it and not allow it to push us back? I'm going to just, you know, name drop from my interview yeah, with Gloria. Right. <laughs> Gloria <Yeah>. and I, <laughs> because I asked her a very similar question and I was very much focused on the lack of change we'd seen and hoped for and what do we do about it, et cetera, et cetera. She said to me, you know, if we were in a room of 100 people and there's a third of the people in that room who think what you're saying is crap and that they're never going to change, 
but you had 70% of the people who actually are ready, willing and able and wanting to move forward. She said you wouldn't stand there and focus on the 30%. You would take the 70% and just go anyway. And I know it's a simplistic analogy and I'm apologies to Gloria because I think she said it much more articulately and it sounded much more intelligently, but it did make me think there's a loud minority and the art I'm trying to learn is to not be sucked into their vortex of the world as they see it because I do believe there's a lot of people who want to see the world as we yeah. believe it It's interesting be you say that because I've had the experience of a lot of trolling on social media, but these days I don't see mm. very much from the trolls. What I tend to see is people defending me from the trolls and I've realised that why mm. is because I've blocked or muted most of the trolls along the way and it turns out they're very noisy, they're very active there aren't actually all that many of them. Mm. No. So I do think the percentage or whatever it is of people, we will never change their mind. And when I waded into those comments <laughs> on the software, um, there was probably 30% of people. I mean, it's a bit self-selecting because if you could be bothered to write a long abusive comment, you're kind of that kind of person who wants to put it out there anyway. Um, but if we ignore them and focus on the 60% that all were saying this is fantastic and you've taught me something, there were so many men who have contacted me today to say I'd never thought about it that way. You know, I have used that line about being a father before. I'm not going to anymore because I hadn't thought it could be perceived in that perspective. That gives me hope. The other thing that I think should give us hope, and I'm scarcely the Pollyanna in this trio, <laughs> I, I suspect, but <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. One of the things that struck me is in 2020 we have seen allegations against a former High Court judge, yes, Dyson true. Hayden, which actually ended up being about six women actually formally coming together, supporting each other and going on the record. I don't think that would have happened uh, pre the Me Too movement. No. Good um, point. I think the um, <laughs> the revolt, and I think that, that it was described that way in the Financial Review by some of the women at AMP after a recent appointment there uh, from someone who'd had a settlement over a sexual harassment complaint. I think that those things wouldn't have happened. And I think, you know, it's, it's easy to forget that a year after Me Too, uh, so end, end of 2018, people were saying this will disappear, we'll never hear about it. Not the case. So I think the profound impact there is still one that is on balance a positive one. I think women have seen, and they did with Celebrating Women as well, the power of coming together, backing each other up, as we wrote about in the book. And um, we saw that in so many places. I'd agree with you. And indeed, the very shrillness, the sort of strident nature of the comments on your piece, Kirsten, and of, you know, what we hear in, on social media in particular, indicates that they are frightened, that in fact progress has been made. The more they hate you, the more effective mm. you're being. Yeah. So I always remember Anne Summers saying that. The mm. louder they yell, the more that you're actually rattling their cage. And I think it's not a bad one to <laughs> no. remember. Kirsten, always a pleasure, always to talk with you um, and fantastic to have your insights. It's been an extraordinary career. Every time that you do something new, I think, oh, my goodness, <laughs> she's moving on again and having even more impact in a fantastic way. Um, and I think that uh, we've all been the better for all of that. So fantastic to have you as our guest today. And it's wonderful to see you emerging as such a powerful writer as well, uh, not simply in books oh, but also in the Sydney Morning Herald and in the media. We need more women's voices loud and proud out there talking about what's going on because half the women's media is closed down. I oh, know. So well done you and yeah. thank you so much for being here. Thanks. Oh, thank you. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and Catherine Fox. 
producer Tina Matanoff. Theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. Listener.